This episode of F1 Beyond the Grid is presented by Paramount Plus. Explore the full mountain of entertainment on offer at Paramount Plus today and find your next favourite show at ParamountPlus.com. Adrian Newey is his name. Designing championship winning Formula One cars is his game. Max Verstappen wins the Japanese Grand Prix. Red Bull are champions of the world. For the sixth time, they take the Constructors' title for the second year in a row. You got to build a, a rocket ship of a car. Well done. The genius behind a car that has destroyed records and dominated rivals in 2023. Newey's creations have now won 12 World Constructors' Championships. He's the sport's most successful designer of all time. And it's easy to see why. When I was about eight to 10, then I'd buy these 12 scale models. But by the time I was about 11, I was a bit bored with building effectively other people's designs. So I, I started sketching my own designs and then used my dad's workshop to, to create these 12 scale models. And the practice of sketching and then turning that into a 3D object was great practice from a very young age. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid. I'm Tom Clarkson and this week we're taking you inside one of Formula One's most fascinating minds. In a career spanning more than 40 years, Adrian Newey has adapted to new regulations, car transformations and drivers from different generations. Seven world champions have been crowned in Newey Designs. In the 1990s, Nigel Mansell, Alain Prost, Damon Hill and Jacques Villeneuve fulfilled their dreams with Adrian at Williams and Mika Hakkinen joined the party at McLaren. Adrian admits that joining Red Bull in 2006 was a gamble, but his designs and his unique approach to the sport transformed the team into serial winners. They took four consecutive championship doubles with Sebastian Vettel from 2010 to 2013. And galvanised by their guru once again, Red Bull are now charging towards back-to-back -to -back doubles with Max Verstappen, the 13th time a driver will have won a title in a new e-car. So what are the secrets to his unprecedented achievements and longevity? Adrian reflects on the team's record-breaking season and he explains why their car is so superior to its competitors. He takes me through his thought processes when he's designing a Formula One car and he tells me why he still prefers to use a drawing board instead of a computer. Adrian also reveals whether he regrets rejecting approaches from Ferrari, why the death of Ayrton Senna left him questioning his future in Formula One, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. It's great to have you on the pod. You've worked in Formula One for more than 40 years. You've enjoyed a huge amount of success in that time. But have you ever experienced anything like 2023 before? No, this, is, this has been our biggest run of success that I've certainly ever experienced. We've had... I've been fortunate enough to be involved in cars that have been dominant in the past, but we've never had this level of consistency. You know, people might think it kind of now everything is guaranteed and, and it will be smooth and blah, blah, blah. The reality is so many things can go wrong in a race. Um, it, it's always actually getting two cars to finish, uh, one of them, or preferably both of them, near the front. Week after week, is a, it's a difficult challenge because of, of all the elements that can go wrong, reliability, accidents, strategy, performance, obviously. Um, so to have achieved this, I think, is, is a real tribute to everybody. And it begs the question, what motivates you, Adrian? Is it a fear of failure? Is it the lure of success? Or is it neither of those things? Is Formula One just a scientific exercise for you? Well, I've kind of come to terms with the fact that my makeup is very competitive now, certainly when it comes to, to professional, um, as opposed to kind of being a bit of an umpty on a tennis court or whatever. Um, Frank, actually, Frank Williams, kind of, um, I always thought I wasn't competitive. And then he said to me, Adrian, you're the most competitive 
person in the pit lane. I was actually slightly taken aback and at first almost slightly, I don't know, not insulted, that's the wrong word, but just unexpected. And I can't say that's true, obviously. That's that's completely kind of objective or subjective um, thing. But yes, I think to answer your question, fear of failure is certainly part of it. But it's not the whole thing. It's, it's, I think it's capitalising. When we, we manage to get ourselves in, as a team in a position where we can win races and hopefully championships, then you, you want to capitalise and maximise that because getting to that position is not easy. Um, having said that, the ironic thing is that, from a chassis point of view anyway, um, when we're winning, we don't, it doesn't actually feel as if we're anything doing anything different. It's just... Everything gels, including, of course, the, the vital three elements, which are the, the driver, the chassis and the engine. And if one of those three is not at or near the top of its game, you might win the odd race here and there, but you certainly won't win championships. Where does this competitive streak in you come from? Is it sibling rivalry back when you were kids or is it something else? Uh, it's not sibling rivalry. My, my brother's seven years older than me, so... Um, we were, as an age gap, too different to be competitive with each other. It's a question I've asked myself, and I'm, the honest truth is I'm not exactly sure, but I think part of it was um, when I was at school, then I was kind of, I suppose, always thought about things a bit differently. Um, one example that's always stuck in my head is that uh, kind of when I was, I don't know, about 12 or so, we had a, a lesson on, um, in science on friction. And it was actually a video, and it went through the sort of what friction does, how it works, etc. And at the end of it, the, the teacher said, um, so everybody, is uh, friction a good thing? And I was the only one who stuck up my hand and said, well, without friction, we'd all fall over. We wouldn't be able to stand up because we'd just slide around everywhere. And everybody laughed, and the teacher laughed at me. And I thought, well, that's a bit unfair because I think I actually have a reasonable point. And it's a silly little example, but it made me, I think, feel as if I needed to prove myself. And feeling you need to prove yourself um, is probably close, is in truth a, a close cousin to being competitive. Do you think you still need to prove yourself <laughs> after all this success? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I've been, I've been lucky enough to have a, obviously a very successful career um but i don't really look back particularly I don't, i'm not a statistic counter i just enjoy being in it ever since i was about 10 or, or even younger than my ambition was to be a, a designer in motor racing and when i got my first job in motor racing at Fittipal, a little team fitterpolders in reading and actually got to the end of the first month and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I was fresh out of university. Um, joined as junior aerodynamicist, which turned out to be senior aerodynamicist. Teams in those days were so tiny that they had no aerodynamics team. I was it. But anyway, I got to the end of the first month, had no idea what I was doing, as I said, and, um, and got a salary for it, And I thought, or a, a paycheck. And I thought, this is amazing. Here I am I've, in motor racing, complete numpty, but I'm getting paid. This is fabulous. And, and really, I can say pretty much, I mean, it's the odd day, of course, that I haven't enjoyed, but pretty much every day has been a, a bonus and a treat. What do you enjoy about the job then? The mixture and the challenge. Um, it's, it's competitive sport. That bit I enjoy, that you are competitive, um, competing, and, and it, that, of course, gives you very quick feedback every two weeks typically in the season or every week now the way the season's gone which can of course be painful if it's going badly but you know where you are and if I compare that to my friends who I still keep in touch with so I went to university with I studied aeronautical engineering so they inevitably went into aerospace companies like British Aerospace Rolls-Royce etc where they were working on projects that wouldn't even fly for 10 plus years away. So there's really no feedback on whether you're doing a good, bad or indifferent job. That immediacy, that feedback is, is something that 
is invigorating. Your dad was a veterinary surgeon. Were you ever tempted to follow him in medicine and, and that aspect of science? No, not really. I mean, I, I love going on sort of um, farm visits with him. I kind of sit on his knee when I was about six and do the steering while he did the pedals, that sort of thing. And then occasionally when I was kind of a little bit older, into my very early teens, then if there was an operation in the, at the weekend and the surgery nurses weren't around, then I would help him with the operation. Um, but I, th I think the, the bit of my dad's... How good were your stitches? <laughs> I definitely wasn't doing any stitching. I was, I was handing the utensils <laughs> and trying not to faint. But the, uh, the, the bit of my dad's makeup or interest that did definitely rub off, rub off was he was a, a huge car enthusiast. Um, so he had Mini Cooper S's and then Lotus Lands and so forth. And he used to enjoy tinkering with them and modifying them and, and so forth. Um, had a small workshop in, his, in the garden, um, which had a lathe and basic metalworking equipment and welding equipment and so forth. And um, using that workshop, I think, was probably quite key to me. So when I was about eight to ten, then I'd buy these Tamiya 12-scale models. Um, the first one was a 1967 30s Honda and then the second one was a, a Hill Lotus and and those 12 scale models were, were great actually because all the parts are labelled front upright or front top wishbone or whatever so you got the terminology in assembling them you, you started to understand how the chassis side of the, the car works in terms of suspension articulated and it's a monocoque that bolts for an engine that bolts for a gearbox that sort of thing but by the time I was about 11 I was a bit I started to become bored with building effectively other people's designs so I I started sketching designs of my own or my own designs um, and then used my my dad's workshop to make the fold up bits of aluminium and make bits of fiberglass and so forth to to create these 12 scale models the, the bits I couldn't make like the the tires and and the engine really I would sort of cannibalize off the old models but I think the the key part of that is there's this all the thing is it the five thousand hour rule that to become ten thousand hours. Ten thousand. Yeah, sorry. it's harder than that. Harder than that. <laughs> I, th I probably did do, probably exceeded those ten thousand hours in those sort of long, boring summer holidays, where I would kind of, as I say, sketch away and then make it. And whilst, of course, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, I think the the practice of sketching and then turning that into a three D object was great practice from a very young age. So you go to university in Southampton. There were Formula One teams using the wind tunnel there. Why a degree in aeronautics and astronautics and not mechanical engineering? Uh, simply that I figured that racing cars were closer to aircraft than But that was quite forward-thinking at the time. Yeah, that would have been 1977. So... I, I suppose in hindsight, maybe it was, but you know, I'd, I'd avidly read every magazine I could find that had anything vaguely technical in it. Visited a few races, uh, particularly Mallory Park, which was close to where I went to school, and, and that was a great little paddock because you could walk around and watch all the, look at all the F2 cars and 5000s and so forth. What impact did that have on you, going to Mallory and, and seeing the cars for real? Huge, because you know, in, in those days there wasn't actually a lot of television. Um, or coverage of, of motor races. So actually seeing the cars, hearing them, smelling them, looking at them in great detail. And, you know, the paddock was completely open. Nobody minded this spotty-nosed little kid kind of poking around. And, and, and in fact, the opposite. A lot of them would actually kind of explain what they were doing and, and so on and so forth. So that was, that was without doubt key, combined with my attempts to go karting, which my dad was quite tough I said I'd love to go karting so we went along to the local kart track Shennington and he made the very accurate observation that as far as he could see a lot of the kids were there not because they were really passionate about it but because their their dads were and it was their dads leading their childhood vocationally or whatever the, the, the phrase is so anyway he said look if you want to go karting you're going to have to buy your own cart 
I'll double your money. I for every pound I earned, I could. He would put a pound in. So kind of washing cars and doing the newspaper rounds and picking plums and from the orchard and selling them outside the veterinary practice and that sort of thing. Earned a bit, but not even doubled. It didn't earn very much. Anyway, the bottom line is I bought this very old, tired old car with a Avilius engine in it and tried racing it. And the combination of it and me was absolutely hopeless. Really? I mean, are you being modest? No, I'm not. It was kind of back of the grid stuff. It wasn't actually the driving that really interested me. It, it was how to make the cart go faster. So I then took myself on a, a welding course in, um, at BOC, British Oxygen, in North Birmingham, which was a kind of a hours bus ride from Stratford, where I grew up. And I was about 15 when I did it, so I, I, I got a bit of peer pressure from kind of all the other guys who were on the course, because I actually, for whatever reason, turned out to be reasonably good at it welding and brazing and and became kind of the lecturer's pet for that two-week course <laughs> i got a bit of flack which which was actually also a good lesson because it kind of made me start to learn how to fit in i developed my brummy accent which was <laughs> quite easy but it, it it's back to i think the combination of going to mallory park Alton park the karting it, it just all helped to develop me and so also to understand that I needed to get to university, um, which suffered a bit of a setback when I got chucked out of school at 16. I went to this very Dickensian public school, which I'll be honest, I absolutely hated from every single day there. Uh, this was a mis- it just What aspects of it did you hate? Was it being away from home? A little bit away from home, but yeah, perhaps I was, I was a bit homesick for sure. But I think the key thing for me was I wasn't terribly sporty. I was pretty average at sport. In looking back, I didn't particularly recognise it at the time, but I probably, as I mentioned earlier, do look at things a bit differently. And that didn't make me terribly popular. So I, was, I had one or two friends, but not many. Got bullied a bit, uh, usual thing. I don't know, just I couldn't engage in my hobbies particularly, although the, actually the workshop manager was very good and he, he used to take my cart up there and work on it during the term time. I ran it around the, the chapel. There's a sort of load of paths around the chapel. And I thought, OK, let's just run it around and make sure it works. And uh, of course, being a two-stroke, it made a hell of a racket. And so pretty soon the whole school turned up to watch me going around in this thing, which then got shut down. And, and unfortunately, the poor old workshop manager got, a, got quite a telling off from the headmaster for it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just didn't fit in. And, and so when I met my demise after O-levels... Then, or what's now okay, called GCSEs. Can I, can I ask, how were your O-levels? Were they good? Were they bad? Uh, actually, no, I was pretty, I was pretty good academically. Um, yeah, no, that's okay. So, but I'm not surprised to hear that. But <laughs> I was just, you know, for people who have just got their results uh, in the UK, I was just, here's some inspiration yeah. that, you know, you can... Well, the funny thing is that I was actually better at the arts than I was at the sciences, if anything. And so the careers advisor at school... Uh, said that I should take art, which I was pretty good at art. Sorry, sounds not very modest, is it? But I was, I was okay at my art. I have, I've, <laughs> I've read people referring to you as the Michelangelo of Formula <laughs> One. So I'm definitely there, yeah. not that bad. But um, so recommendations are English and history, and uh, fine. But I had no interest in doing art, English, and history. I, I was completely single-minded at that point of um, wanting to be a. Work in motor racing as a designer. It is extraordinary how early in your life you knew that this is what you wanted to do. Yeah. Given that there was no motor racing in the family. No, I was very lucky, to be perfectly honest, because, you know, obviously for most people, they it takes them a long time to find their vocation. But for whatever reason, I think um, with me, it just clicked from that very young age. This episode of F1 Beyond the Grid is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Stream epic blockbusters, new originals and top shows, including the new smash hit Special Ops Lioness from the creator of Yellowstone, Taylor Sheridan, featuring an all-star cast with Morgan Freeman, Nicole Kidman and Zoe Saldana. It's your next must-watch show. Stream the entire series today. Paramount Plus has something for everyone. 
Watch all your favourite shows from Nickelodeon, Showtime, the complete Star Trek catalogue and so much more. From Top Gun Maverick to Smile, Paramount Plus has your movie night sorted. Grab the popcorn and get comfortable while exploring the full mountain of entertainment. Explore a mountain of entertainment on Paramount Plus today and find your next favourite show. Subscribe today at ParamountPlus.com. So you then go to university and your final year project is about ground effect. And I did want to ask whether what you learnt in that final year project is still applied today with these ground effect cars that we have in Formula One? To an extent, yes. I mean, I think it, it gave certainly gave an understanding of how it all works. Um, and from quite a theoretical level to start with. So the initial research I did for that was using a, a little 2D model, uh, which means you know it's a tiny tunnel, which is just concentrating on the underbody shape and hand, trying to understand how that works um, and how to profile it. And then building up to a, a quarter scale model of a sports car. And again, those wind tunnel tests gave me a reasonable understanding from a, as a 20 stroke 21 year old. And I think that fundamentals understanding has stood me in good stead, particularly in those years of through the 80s, where the, the understanding of aerodynamics in motor racing was still relatively basic and, and indeed it was much more difficult to understand the flow fields than it is now because in those days all you had was flow vis, which probably viewers have seen still being squirted on cars when they go out which gives you an understanding of the surface flow and wool tufts and that literally was it so trying to understand the, the flow structures was then using those clues if you like and then sketching out what the vortices and flow might look like whereas nowadays with cfd and a thing called piv in the wind tunnel then you you have instant access to what it looks like how has your understanding of ground effect changed over the years how much better do you understand the concept now than you did back then of course it evolves and i think the key thing particularly these venturi cars that came in at the start of last year but it's also true of the flat bottom or the step bottom cars flat bottom cars before that is it's not just the aerodynamics, it's how it couples with the chassis as well. And that is one of the big keys that perhaps I've had a bit of an advantage in because I experienced that when I was at Fittipaldi's. By the time we got back into Formula 1 in 88, then they were flat-bottom cars. Fittipaldi's and then working in IndyCar. So I, I did three seasons in IndyCar, um, which are also Venturi cars. So... They gave me a good understanding of the, of the cross-coupling. I think that also is where I've been quite lucky when I was born because I sort of started, I worked for 18 months as aerodynamicist at Fitzpolders. Fitzpolders then started to become obvious that they'd lost all their money and or sponsorship and it was not going to be very stable. Peter Waugh, who was the team manager left for Lotus and offered me a job as an aerodynamicist at Lotus. Peter McIntosh, who was sort of assistant team manager, left simultaneously and went to March and offered me a job as a, a junior designer, a draftsman in the design office or drawing office um, during the week and a race engineer in F2 at the weekend. And much as the chance to join Lotus was massively appealing, kind of um, as being the, if you like, the, the team that I'd always followed because of my dad's Lotus Lands. I felt that I'd now had 18 months as a aerodynamicist. Let's try and learn about the other two disciplines of design and race engineering. It is an extraordinary grounding that you've had in the sport in those early years, isn't it? Because given what you did at university and given what you, the job you'd been doing at Fittipaldi, the obvious thing to do would have been to go to Lotus, wouldn't it? It was the obvious thing, but as I said, I... Motor racing hasn't changed since those days and as much as today it's still those three disciplines of aerodynamics, mechanical design and vehicle dynamics, um, which encompasses race engineering. And nowadays the, the, the team, our teams, all the Formula One teams are so big that it's very difficult. It's not impossible. It's very difficult for 
one person to gain proper experience in all three departments, you end up specialised, which I think is absolutely fine. I'm not. There's no good or bad about that. It's it's just different. Um, whereas, I say when I started, then the teams were tiny, and it, I was able to get, I say, kind of literally having graduated in 1980 by the end of 1983 i was in charge of the design of a, a racing sports car for march so it was, a, it was a very very quick graduation and is that grounding in all areas the secret to your longevity and success i think it does help because and and you know even now i'm in the v8 era at red bull then at that point i was still physically drawing a lot of the layout of the car a lot of the aerodynamic surfaces of the car came off my drawing board which is another story now that's changed the the team's more developed we've got some great people and so my i still do draw parts but less than much less than i used to hopefully my contribution still is to be able to take an overview and to kind of use that experience across the three departments to make sure that we're well integrated now can we talk about the drawing board right famously you still use a drawing board when cad is ubiquitous in in formula one what are the advantages of the board the pen and paper if you like (laughs) (laughs) that i'm a dinosaur and it suits me (laughs) (laughs) but it's quite it's extraordinary how you still use that and yet you are still so current as well for me, it's, it's CAD or a drawing board. It's, it's a way of getting ideas in your head down into a medium that can be developed from. Typically, I, I will nowadays, of course, if it's aerodynamic, I'll look at the CFD, the Computational Fluid Dynamics, which is aerodynamics on computer, which is an amazing tool that really didn't reach maturity in Form 1 until kind of late 90s. So I, I will kind of look at the CFD, I'll sketch from that, I'll sketch some ideas, um, working with my colleagues, of course, and, and then draw something. Now, I've used a drawing board because, to me, it's, it's the language that I'm most comfortable and most fluent in. If I tried to use a CAD, I feel I would never be as fluent in it. I, I, I will spend too much time thinking about how to operate it and not just drawing naturally if you like subconsciously the drawing bit has to be subconscious now or for me it does and i think um cad is now if i if i watch the guys in those sort of early years of cad which again cad came in and properly somewhere around the mid 90s early to mid 90s in formula one those early cad systems were quite mechanical people used to have to concentrate a lot on trying to get it into the system of course, now those the systems are developed and, and the, the guys who are fluent in it can, if you like, draw subconsciously in the way that I can. The drawing is not the part that is loading them. I'm never going to achieve that. And to me, it actually doesn't matter. I've, I've become, through years of practice, I can... And this probably stems actually back to those formative years of sketching models and, mo- and making them. I could... I, I seem to have a quite a a good ability to be able to visualise something in 3D and then put it down onto paper in 2D. Whereas the CAD system, of course, does free you of that. You don't, you don't have to go through the 2D, but you can start straight in 3D. Did you try and get the hang of CAD? I did briefly in my kind of um, gap six months or so between leaving Williams and joining McLaren. Then I, I did go on a CAD course and... Uh, it just didn't come naturally, so I gave up on it, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, look, the tools at your disposal have changed hugely over the years, but what about your thought process when you're designing a new car? Is that the same as when you started? Yes, it is. I think the inputs are more thorough and, and better understood than when I started. So if I think back to when I started designing the indie cars in kind of 84, your knowledge on which to base a new design was not well, as well informed as it is today because we didn't the teams were much smaller but more importantly we didn't have the tools that we have today the people often ask what's what's the biggest revolution that i've seen in formula or in motor racing through the years and i was it has to be computing power and the simulation tools that 
run off the back of that because it's that that allows a much more thorough understanding of the car. But where does the process start? You obviously look at the rule book first. And then what's the first thing you're looking at when you're designing a car? Is it, is it the position of the, of the power unit? Is it the wheelbase? The big rule change that we had at the start of last year, which I think you can easily argue is the biggest single rule change we had since Venturi cars got banned in, at the end of 1982, I think it was. Then that was, yeah, sitting down with the rule book, as you say. Then trying to understand what architecture in terms of where do you put the front wheels, where do you put the rear wheels relative to the, the fixed bits of the series of sort of chassis engine gearbox the underlying architecture you have to decide and then from that starting to, in my case what i concentrated on was that architecture and then the the front and rear suspension because they're kind of key bits that you want to try and get right if you possibly can if you, if you get the bodywork wrong within reason you can change it during a season but if you get the underlying architecture wrong at the very least you're stuck with it for one season what is it that you got so right about these regs that's given you the advantage that you have got i can't tell you that can i (laughs) (laughs) or or what is the greatest strength of rb19 19 is clearly a, a very close evolution of 18 so 18 actually was conceived probably in a much shorter time than most if not all our rivals because in 21, we were in the big championship battle with Mercedes. And possibly wrongly, but because we were in, for the first time in many years, we were in the chart for a championship, we decided to put quite a lot of effort into developing that car through the year, which meant that our, whereas Ferrari, for instance, took the opposite approach, they weren't in championship battle in 21, so they stopped developing their 21 car very early on and just concentrated on the, the design of the 22 car. Mercedes was somewhere in between that. We kept developing far longer than either of those teams. And so theoretically that put us at a disadvantage, but I think what we did manage to do, as I say, is, is get the architecture right. And so when 18 first came out in Bahrain last year, then I think you can easily, well, the Ferrari was certainly as quick, if not quicker in the early season. We managed to get the, the kind of fundamentals right and that, gave us a good development platform. And did you know within 10 laps of testing in Bahrain that it was born well, if that's a... Yes, we did actually. I think that, yes, we, we had some, an amount of bouncing, um, not as bad as the other teams, but we still had some bouncing, which we needed to get on top of. And I think had a reasonable understanding of what we needed to do to do that. So come the first upgrade we had, in for the Bahrain race then bouncing was much less of an issue than we had with other, for others than it was for other teams and that it meant that we didn't have to put a lot of our development energy into fixing bouncing such as Ferrari and Mercedes did and and that knowledge of bouncing was something that you'd had from well fun, back funny in the day. enough it was to an extent in as much as um well, I, I very clearly remember Fittipaldi's. It was actually the first time I went to the circuit when I was at Fittipaldi's. And Harvey Postlethwaite, who was the, the um, technical director there, because the cars were running so stiff, he had the idea to save a bit of weight by throwing away the front dampers and springs and replacing them with bump rubbers, which is something he tried in the he- his Hesketh days. And I remember Keki Rosberg coming past on the, the, pit, the old pit straight at, at Silverstone and the front wheels were in the air as he came past. It was bouncing so badly. And I think that was, that was a very early lesson that this isn't just about aero. It's also the coupling of aero and, and suspension. What did KK say? <laughs> I'm trying to imagine. <laughs> swearing, probably. I'd imagine a lot of swearing, getting out and smoking a cigarette would have been normal KK. <laughs> now, Adrian, is there a trademark newism on your cars? Is there something that you've carried all the way through? Philosophically, I think it's, it's something is trying to get the car to work over a broad envelope. And that's something that the 88 Lacing House or all the Lacing Houses didn't achieve in as much as those cars worked extremely well at some circuits. And indeed in 88, I think we were the, you know, Estrell then even finished ahead of Ayrton driving a dominant McLaren was actually closing in on Prost um, in his McLaren. Ivan went on to lead a, a, 
albeit only one lap at, in the wet in Suzuka at the end of the year. So that car worked very well at some circuits, but not all circuits. There's a famous story, Adrian, of Prost coming in at Estoril, having followed Capelli through the 180-degree final last corner, corner yeah. last corner, and he'd got out of his car and told everyone at, at McLaren, that car, that car, that is good car. It's <laughs> a good car aerodynamically. I don't know. Did that story ever feed back to you? Well, what do, I do remember, actually, funny enough, I do remember that. I don't know why, but I remember that even coming around the lap before with um, Prost just behind him, and then even coming around the following lap and past us on the, pit stra- the main straight with Prost crawling along in about third gear and thinking, and then accelerating again. What on earth was he doing? And it turns out that the entry speed that Ivan carried into that long corner, Prost was convinced he was going to crash and he didn't want to get tangled up in the accident, so he backed right off. There you go, exactly. Wow, yeah. great story. Do you get inspiration from other sectors of industry? I do, actually. I, I try to always look around. And So, for instance, a silly example of that would be, I remember uh, going to the Caribbean on holiday, in must have been 95 um, and past that holiday I think we flew into one island and then took a little puddle jumper sort of propeller aircraft from one island to another and looking out of the looking at the aircraft before we took out and looking out the window I noticed the the way they shaped the air intake uh, for the engine and behind the propeller it was swan-necked and wasted uh, and, and separate to the main, if you like, body of the, of the um, engine. And we'd been struggling in 96 with Damon where the airbox pressure and hence the engine power was incredibly sensitive to the headrest shape and to his seating position. And so that just gave me the idea, well, actually what we need to do is, is raise the roll hoop up or the air intake of the part of the roll hoop up to be completely separate to the headrest and then kind of waste in the headrest which is of course the standard solution nowadays but that came from looking around and there are other little examples so you never switch off not even when you're on holiday in the in the caribbean (laughs) that's what we've learned from that i must admit i i prefer to have a two-week holiday because i find the first week it takes me a week to wind down now in terms of rules optimization which of your cars has given you the most satisfaction the 98 McLaren, because it, that, was the, that was the year where we went to the narrow track and the groove tires. And it was my first McLaren. I arrived, I started the 1st of August. So it was an incredibly compressed design cycle. And maybe there's a moral in there. That kind of, a lot of my more successful cars I've been involved in have actually started quite late. <laughs> the, 20, the 22 car, that <laughs> McLaren. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think, again, we got the fundamentals right. One of the things we did was, um, because the track had gone so much narrower from two metres to 1.8, then there was a lot of theories of floating around. Because of that kind of narrow track, there's this theory about wheelbase to track ratio. Um, so in other words, the distance between the, of the front wheel axle line to the rear wheel axle line divided by the width of the car. And I thought, I just can't see why that would be an important ratio. What we really need is to try to maintain entry stability, which is when you first turn into the corner and you're still on the brakes, and that's when the car's unloaded at the rear and can easily become unstable. And that's dominated by how much weight the outside front and the inside rear carry in that condition. So if we've narrowed the track, the only way to maintain a similar distribution has to go longer in the wheelbase. And that's exactly what we did. And that was a unique feature of that 98 car. Is kind of, um, unfortunately, Ross Braun at Ferrari at the time spotted it and, and they started to move their front axle forwards and then... But you were the first to it. do it. We were the first on that one, yeah. And it wasn't the only feature. We, you know, the, we managed to get the car very light, very low centre of gravity again for, to try and minimise the weight transfer onto these clearly very fragile tyres. And was Mika Hakkinen very effective at driving that kind of car? The great strength of Mika was, first of all, his self-confidence and self-belief. And he just didn't seem to be affected by pressure. And I'm sorry, I digress to a, a small example, well, a very key example of that briefly, which was 98 was a very high pressure year. And the same with 99, actually, where 
both years the Drivers' Championship went down to the last race in Suzuka. And uh, was it 98 or 99 where uh, we had, I can't honestly remember which one it was now, but I do remember that in, in Suzuka you have these little offices above the pits. And before the, on Saturday evening before the race, Ron Dennis, myself, Mika, the other key race engineers, other key people in the sat in that office upstairs coming up with strategy. It became very complicated, you know, if Irvine pits here, then we do that, and if Schumacher does that, we do this, and blah, blah, blah. And after about half an hour of that, if not more, Mick are just sitting quietly in the corner saying nothing. He just got up and left. And the following morning, he got in the car, disappeared in, off into the distance and won the race. And that, that, was, that was Mick's way of doing things. He, he kept things simple. He didn't appear to feel the pressure, and he just got on with it. And to go back to your question, I think what was great about Mika when I first arrived at McLaren, then, then funny enough, there's, particularly within the engineering team, there's actually quite a low regard for Mika. And it's because he had his own way of communicating and describing what the car was doing. People weren't really taking the trouble to listen to that and try to understand what he was saying. And kind of, I think from my race engineering background, particularly from the IndyCar days, then I seem to be able to break through that and, and, and get it out of him. And, and what was brilliant is that once you understood his language, he used very few words. He would just describe very succinctly what he needed to make the car go faster and then go away and go back to the hotel room or whatever he did. He, there weren't these long, kind of painful debriefs. With your race engineer head on, how much info do you want from the driver, given the amount of data you have now? The driver is absolutely key. Data on its own doesn't even begin to tell you the whole story, not least because the data obviously tells you what the car's doing. But a good driver will adapt his driving to whatever the limitation of the car is. So it might be that the data, for instance, says that the car's understeering, and it is understeering. But the reason it's understeering is because the driver feels it's unstable, and so he changes his line in his driving style to cover that instability in the net result is understeer so getting that out of the driver and trying to understand what is really holding him back and what he needs to make the car go faster is, and is still a very much a human element and was Mika good at describing that or was he so natural that he would be driving around a problem without realizing he was driving around it to start with early on so when the 98 car when we first started running um he just kept coming on and coming in and saying it's understeering it's understeering and so he do the things you normally do for understeer, you'd increase the front wing angle, you'd soften the front roll bar, whatever it might be. And you'd go out and you'd come in and say, understeer is even worse. And, and, and that was part of that learning process with Mika for both of us. It was, well, actually, it's not understeering then, is it? It must be, it's unstable. So we went in the opposite direction and suddenly the understeer was much better because he was such a natural driver. He, he didn't even realise... He was doing it himself. And I think that was also a big lesson for him that he learned from to become more cognitive of, of what he was doing in the car. You were race engineering Mika Hakkinen as well as designing the car. There's two times in my Leighton House to an extent, but particularly Williams and McLaren, where I was acting race engineer, which was uh, for Damon in 96 and Mika in 98, where on both occasions the, the race engineer from the previous year had left or moved to a different position. And rather than kind of poached from the pit lane, in both times we promoted from within, but from people who didn't have any experience in, motor, in race engineering. So I became the sort of, what do you call it, the coach race engineer, I suppose. <laughs> now the look, overseer. Yeah. Now, look, while we're talking drivers, seven different guys have won world titles in your cars. Nigel Mansell, Al Ampros, Damon Hill, Jacques Villeneuve, Mika Hakkinen, Sebastian Vettel and Max Verstappen. Which two would make the most formidable teammates? I think it's, it's they're all so different. It's, it's Come on, Team it, Newey. Team Newey. You can have two of them in your but cars. In the process of doing that, then I'm, I'm favouritising or I'm singling out. And I, I don't think that's fair. It's, it's their... Any world champions are clearly a great driver. All those guys, they're very different in their character and their makeup. 
Some of them have a, a, a very high level of self-belief, and that, I think, has been one of their keys, but not all of them. They're so different. I, th I think teammates, though, is an, it's not one I've been asked before. It's usually which one's the best. Teammates is an interesting one because it's the old thing. The first thing a teammate wants to do is, particularly if he's young or ambitious, is, is show that he's the best. And he probably comes in thinking he's the best. That can then des destroy a driver's self-confidence or, or whatever. And indeed, I think um, you know, Max, with his incredible ability, has completely, un not by any deliberate action, but I think Alex struggled to come to terms with just how quick Max was, as did Pierre Gasly and, and, and other examples. So if, if you're going to have two teammates where one is exceptional and the other is brilliant but not quite at that level, the other one needs to be somebody who will at some point accept that he can't, certainly can't beat, say, Max, for instance, on, on pace. You're going to have to do it in some other way, which is, of course, has been done. If you look at uh, Nicky and Alan against each other, then Alan was always the quicker driver, but Nicky managed to win a championship. Um, you'd probably argue the same for, for Nico and um, Lewis. So for team harmony, can you have two number one drivers in a team, or do you need a number one and a number two? Can, you, can we recreate a Senna-Prost situation? It's a difficult one to manage, for sure. Um, Would you enjoy the challenge? Of course, yes. But still, you, ideally, you want to... There are some drivers who will be happy battling each other on the track, but not bring it into the garage. And the other drivers who will perhaps turn it into a bit of a political game as well, let's say. That's the difficult one when you... Like anything, politics is, is such a kind of destructive force because you it, it just saps everybody's energy do you think age is important if you're going to have two quick guys you need an older guy and a younger guy the older guy you hope will be able to have a bit of perspective and possibly i mean it'd be an interesting one fernando i think is he's clearly one of the most formidable competitors ever um and, and famous for kind of not getting on that well with his teammates let's say if say it was Max versus Fernando or Lewis versus Fernando again. Would Fernando, with all that experience he now has, be different to the Fernando versus Lewis of whichever year it was? That's an interesting what, one. What do you think? I think Fernando would be, would be different now. I think he's mellowed. He's mellowed, Certainly exactly. in my dealings with him. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, look, as an aside, you didn't work with Ayrton Senna for long, but did you see enough of Ayrton to understand what made him different? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was obviously a very short relationship, unfortunately. I suppose I'm not as bad as I used to be on this, but kind of part of my competitive thing was is that when you have somebody like Ayrton that you're all up against and battling year after year, then you kind of, not demonise him, but you, you kind of, he's the enemy. And so, well, of course, met him occasionally, but never really talked to him until he first visited the factory at the end of what must have been 93. So introduced to him and, and then straight away it was, can I see the wind tunnel model? So we walked around to the wind tunnel. And again, straight away, he was kind of down on his knees, looking underneath the car, wanting to explain what we'd done differently, what was different about this car to the previous year's car, why had we done it, et cetera, et cetera. He, he was phenomenally inquisitive. You know, you could argue that he didn't need to know that, but for him, he just wanted every bit of information he could possibly have because that might be useful to him at some point in the future. I think probably more than any other driver that I've been involved with, that I would say is what I found unique about him. And those pole laps, was he doing something different? Could you see from the conversations, from the data, that he was famous for his throttle application, yeah. for example? The, the 94 car is one of my huge regrets, regardless of what was the cause of the accident at Imola. The one thing you can definitely say about the car is it was aerodynamically unstable. We'd had two years with active suspension, and I completely, you know, it's my fault, I completely messed up the, the aerodynamics of going back to passive suspension and the much bigger ride height range that that has to cope with. It was a very, very difficult car to drive. 
And the bumpy the circuit, the worse that became. And of course, Imola is quite a bumpy circuit. So what he did with that car was quite extraordinary. And it, he could do that in qualifying. In Brazil, he, he managed to carry it, but spun at the last corner near the end of the race, extracting that performance from it. Damon was didn't try to extract that level of performance from it, and so he finished the race. But he knew it was unstable. Ayrton's self-confidence and self-belief in his car control, he he would always try it. Um, yeah, I mean, his, he was an extra... His car control and his, his concentration was quite, quite extraordinary. Can we talk a little bit more about Damon? Because when Patrick Head came on the podcast, he said that the way Damon led Williams after Imola 94 was more impressive than his title win in 96. Yes, I mean, we were, we were a shattered team, to be honest. Um, we'd had a bad first four races anyway, and as much as... The cars were very difficult to drive and not terribly reliable. Um, so as sort of reigning world champions, we were not where we thought we were going to be. Then obviously the events of Imla were a shock for all of us. One of the things, it sounds stupid to say, but I'd never ever thought what happens if somebody is badly hurt or dies in a, in a car that I've been responsible for. Um, that happened that weekend and it, and it makes you question everything really so it, it was and, and there's the whole post-mortem of trying to understand what happened what caused the accident there was the manslaughter charges hanging over us so it was a very difficult period and I think Patrick also was asking himself the same questions Damon I think and it, interestingly, of course, he had been in exactly the same position as his dad had been when, when Jim Clark passed. Um, he was now suddenly, but much more extreme for Damon, in as much as he was still only in his second proper season in Formula One, uh, was now the, the team leader. And I think his inner strength in metal to then carry things forwards from there was, was quite extraordinary. Um, now, I think, yes, you can argue, that, very easily argue, that what he did in that car for the balance of 1994 was... I don't know if it's more impressive than his 96 season, because in 96 he had a, a good car that was reliable enough and all he had to do is, in reality, was beat his teammate who was a rookie from IndyCar. 94, he had to to carry the team forwards and it, it, the fact that he did that and took it down to the wire I think was was a phenomenal performance Did 1994 make you question your involvement in Formula 1? Did you ever want to stop? I thought about it I have to say You'd be a fool or be something wrong if you didn't question yourself and you question what you're doing First of all it would have been quite selfish because if Patrick or I, or both of us, had decided we were stopping, we'd have left the team in complete disarray. Like all mistakes, regardless of what did cause the accident, you have to learn from the possibilities of what might have caused the accident and make sure that react to that and make sure that you try to take appropriate measures to stop that ever happening again. Adrian, when was peak Formula One for you in terms of the enjoyment you were getting from it? It's such a difficult one. I think you know, I've been lucky enough to, to have worked in it for a long time and in that time seen huge changes. My enjoyment of, my, of Formula One has, I can't say one era has been more or less enjoyable than, than others. Just different. It's a bit... This is an exaggeration, but it's like kind of which is better, an F-15 pilot or a Spitfire pilot? It's just, it's just completely different, I think. The era that fascinates me is the 70s, where kind of, you know, through the 60s, you had these cigar tube-shaped cars um, all looking roughly the same. And then in the very early 70s, people started 
experimenting with their ideas for aerodynamics. Generally, with hindsight, not particularly well-founded, but of course they didn't have the research tools to back them up, so no criticism. And so you suddenly had this explosion of different shapes from the, the wedge-shaped 72 to the Tyrrell six-wheeler to the triangular Brabham's and so on and so forth. And I think it's a very different thing where the rule book, I have a copy of those 70s rule books somewhere, and they're literally about three pages long. (laughs) Of course, it was the complete opposite scale, end of the scale to where we are now, where in those days you had a very small design team, probably three or four people at the most, with virtually no research tools. So their understanding was much more gut feel, if you like. And so sometimes you come up with a blinding design and, and everybody would pat you on the back and then the next one would be a turkey because the problem is it was very difficult to have the understanding. I'm interested about gut feel. Do you ever go with your gut or is it purely an academic thing for you? No, I think there has to be a degree of gut. There has to be, even with all the tools we have now, there still has to be a degree of gut. And that, the reality is, even before the cost cap, we were still... Resource, lim- resource and people limited. We have never had the capacity to be able to research endless different paths in great detail. So if you take a recent example, um, obviously with last year's car, we took an aerodynamic direction with the side pod and design and, and, and the concept of the car, which was almost polar opposite to what Mercedes did. Mercedes showed flashes of competitive last year they obviously won in brazil then you're faced with a choice of well do we start to research mercedes in case we've missed something or do we do we stick with what we're doing and gut feels let's stick with what we're doing so there's just two more topics i wanted to run past you one of them is ferrari i was actually chatting to gerhard berger earlier in the week and i said gerhard how hard did you try to get adrian uh, in 1993 he said we tried hard <laughs> we, we they tried did, yes they did yeah. <laughs> ultimately why did that never happen those I mean how many two times three times how uh, many times did they come asking well IndyCar days which probably doesn't count then yeah 93 and uh, famously in 214 um, the 93 one was very tempting so I went down uh, Jean Tosser just started uh remember him talking about should he hire Michael or not? Do you think that was a good idea? The main reason I didn't is my first marriage failed for various reasons, but probably predominantly because I went off to IndyCars. So I was living in the States during the season. My relatively newly wed wife came out with me to start with, really didn't like living in America and went back and that put a strain on our marriage that we never really recovered from to be perfectly honest so 93 odd one year into my second marriage uh, I didn't want to make that same mistake again were Ferrari prepared to do a John Barnard deal and have you designed from the UK I never asked the question I, I don't believe I don't believe it so I never asked I think if you if you're going to do it Ferrari's an Italian team it having the idea of having a, a research and design centre which is completely different place to the race team. I know we have a sister team that does that, but I don't, I don't believe in the concept. Do you regret not having Ferrari on your CV at some point? Emotionally, I guess, to a point, yes. But, you know, just as, for instance, working with Fernando or Lewis would have been fabulous, but it never happened it's just circumstance sometimes that's the way it is um my discussions with 214 for about with ferrari were purely out of frustration that joined red bull is with christian being centrally involved more or less from the start in developing it we've been fortunate enough to you know the, the ambition and it was a big for me it's a huge career gamble going from from McLaren, this championship-winning team, to this start-up kind of joke of the pit lane team, which it was at the time. But, you know, the ambition, obviously, of hoping to win a race and maybe even a championship. So just fun four on the trot, which was 
yeah, above wildest dreams. Centrally involved, felt very kind of almost paternal with the team in terms of how it developed and the ideas and the effort that we put into it. So really didn't want to leave, but we were in this position where Renault hadn't produced a competitive en engine in the turbo hybrid engine, um, which, you know, that happens first year. Okay, it's new rules. We all make mistakes. But went to see Carlos Ghosn, the then boss of Renault, uh, Jean-Zélysée, Christian Helmut and myself, to kind of try to put pressure on him to up the budget and basically ask how uh, can you free more resource so that very the engine the engine division can um, can accelerate their program because they're all understandably saying that they were resource limited and they needed more people and more money uh, and and Gaines reply was well I have no interest in formula 1 I'm only in it because my marketing people say I should be and that was such a depressing place to be that we now had this yawn into the future where we knew Mercedes wouldn't give us an engine Ferrari had a great engine but we'd used Ferraris initially and I'd taken them away, us away from Ferrari in the first year to Renault because I believed rightly or wrongly that if you're in a championship battle we would Ferrari would never give us equal equipment so we were stuck with Renault for some huge amount of time looking forward to the future and so being in the position where it looked like we would, couldn't be properly competitive in any visible point in the future was just a very dark tunnel to be in do you think in 214 if you'd had a mercedes power unit you could have run the works team pretty pretty close yes i think we probably could have done uh, i mean all credit to mercedes on the chassis side they obviously had a great run i think there were some years where arguably we had the better chassis. There are other years where they definitely had the better chassis, but we would have certainly given them a pretty good run for their money, I think. Well, Adrian, it's been a brilliant chat. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. Look, what does, what does the future hold for Adrian Newey? Are you the kind of guy who's going to retire? I, I find it hard to believe. It's difficult to answer. I remember when I was about 50, kind of... Um, my father always wanted to retire when he was kind of early 60s, which he did. And, and it, retirement didn't suit him that very well, to be honest. So I kind of, when I was 50, I thought, oh, I'll retire soon. And here I am, 64. <laughs> um, because you love it. I, I love it. I also now, I, of course, things change and, and, and the way you do your job changes. So I, as well as I do now enjoy more and more working with the the team and, and, and develop helping to kind of yeah just working with it with with all the all the engineers and, and and seeing them develop is is very rewarding so that's that's a an aspect which i particularly enjoy um i do also involve myself in other things now so we're doing this track car project and i try to take a bit more holiday time so things do slowly change but i'll whether it's Formula One or something else, I need something to keep my brain active. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. Good luck in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Adrian as much as I did. The man is a genius, and I don't use that word lightly. But for all his technical brilliance, his modesty was equally apparent. The man has no ego, which must make him a joy to work with. Adrian, thank you for your time. Many congratulations on your latest Constructors title, and I look forward to seeing you at a racetrack again soon. So what did you make of what you've just heard from Adrian? Let me know through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid, and I'll read out some of your messages at the end of next week's show. Which, of course, brings me on to what you sent in about Mick Doohan after last week, the two-wheeled king. We've had lots of lovely messages about Mick, all saying, without exception, what a legend the man is. Let's start with this from Pirelli tyre fitter, Michael Cruikshank. Loved listening to Mick, what a fantastic career he had, and he made some incredible recoveries from injury. He would always take cover in the Pirelli fitting area in the Formula 2 paddock and take the time to chat to us fitters. 
Well, thanks for the message, Michael. Mick is a ripper of a bloke, and I can imagine him hanging out with you guys and talking about racing. And what about this from D8? I met Mick at my father's restaurant on the Gold Coast in the mid-1990s. He was having dinner with Sir Jack Brabham and Sir Frank Gardner. What a table of Aussie motorsport royalty, and what a thrill for a teenager at the time. Oh my goodness, greatness right there, D8. Definitely the fastest table in Australia. What a lovely story. Thank you for your message. Next, let's hear from Sid. What an amazing chat with Mick. I had the pleasure of meeting him and seeing Jack in 2020 at Sepang. He was so nice and had all the time in the world for me and was clearly proud of Jack's pole position, fastest lap and win on that day. I can't wait to see Jack in Formula One. Oh, thanks for that memory, Sid. And thanks too for sending in the pictures of you and Mick. Treasure them. And finally, here's Nicholas Harburg. I got into bikes before Formula One and was a big fan of Mick for his entire career. His tenacity, combined with his no worries attitude, made me a great fan. Great interview, and I'm hoping Jack gets his chance in the big time. Oh, thanks, Nicholas. I love your description of Mick's tenacity and no worries attitude. It is exactly that, and it gives him a unique charm, doesn't it? Well, we'll leave it there for messages this week, but thank you to everyone who got in touch. We love hearing from you. And please remember to send in your thoughts about this chat with Adrian in time for next week's show. And for more reaction on Red Bull becoming world champions in 2023, make sure you listen to F1 Nation's review of the Japanese Grand Prix with me, Damon Hill, and Natalie Pinkham. We hear from their team principal, Christian Horner. Thanks for listening. I'll be back, of course, next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.